Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and contributor at places like the Dispatch, Arc Digital, and elsewhere, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them on this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. In this week's show, I'm going to cover the latest conspiracy that's sweeping the internet, the alleged conspiracy that Donald Trump is abusing the United States Postal Service to rig the 2020 election. If you've heard about it, we're going to cover that exactly what you've gone through. If you have not, we will go through it and cover all the basics. We're going to go through the main theory that's there and debunk it and other other tentacles that are attached to it. And then from there, we'll go through the latest coronavirus numbers and talk through an update on herd immunity theory. There's a lot of interesting thing that's happening right there. Aside from everything you're hearing about potential vaccinations and everything, the idea that herd immunity could potentially be helping us out is an exciting development on that front. So those are the main topics for this week's show, and we'll also have a light item at the end. But first, I want to start off with some quick hit points on the Democratic Convention, which is starting this week and running Monday through Thursday. So we're entering the convention waves of the month. You have the Democratic Convention, which is this week, and the Republican Convention, which follows up after. So the big question this year is how much do these virtual conventions actually matter? Because no one really knows. This has never been attempted before. Usually what happens when you have a convention is that you have this polling bump that each candidate typically gets. You see them rise in the polls as everyone's optimistic and sort of looking forward from the primary season into the general election. And usually, you know, it's it, it's small. It's like one to three points, but it's still substantially there because you start seeing this sort of come home effect. Everyone is fractured during the primaries. And then with the the all the pomp and pageantry of the party convention, everyone comes together behind the candidate and they unite for the general election. Well, the big difference is that's not here this year. You don't have the pomp. You don't have the pageantry. You don't have the big show. You don't have the crowds. And the first party up this week are the Democrats. So the big thing for this one is you have Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's speeches. Those loom the largest, as will Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's speech. I believe she's speaking at some point. I haven't seen the exact detailed speaking list yet. And everyone in all their speeches will undoubtedly focus on Donald Trump. But I suspect also because you had we've had Nancy Pelosi say that that Democrats should come back to Congress to vote on some legislation regarding the Postal Service. I suspect that people are going to make the United States Postal Service a bigger foil 
as the convention wears on, as Democrats are increasingly going to accuse Trump of trying to rig the election in his favor using the Postal Service. So it's a strange focus to have going into election. It's like going into 2016 with a a already focusing on the concept of the potential of Russian collusion early on. They're trying to make that argument up front instead of going through it afterwards. And so it, it's, as I've written in prior columns, you're sort of setting up a delegitimization movement ahead of ever getting there. And I think that's, for one, it's just it's a garbage argument straight up. But it's also a, a bad thing to do for your voters going into the general election to already make them think that things are going to be wrong in the event that you lose, that everything's already illegitimate in the event if you lose. And if it's true then, then you would also think that there's also some illegitimacies even if you win. So it's a very strange argument that I think is going to be made over the course of the week, just judging by what's happening in the Democratic Party's politics right now. So aside from that, it's just it's best to keep an eye on what happens, especially this week at the convention, because it's going everyone's going to learn for the Republicans on the next week how to handle some of these situations that come up. And either way, you're watching history this week because neither party in, Amer- in all of American history has ever had to deal with the realities of these conventions. There's never been a virtual convention, and there's never been anything like this it's ha- where it's happened in the middle of a virus where the virus is dictating terms more than we are to it. So that's the first thing you want to watch. The second thing I want to cover here goes back to the newsletter on the Friday in the Friday newsletter I covered how Kamala Harris is just a bad choice for Joe Biden's campaign and I continue to hold that position because I think Cory Booker was the smarter choice here and would have helped out Biden a lot more but right now conventional wisdom in DC is that she's a good pick and at worst case scenario she does absolutely nothing to the ticket and has no impact whatsoever now, based on her past performances, I think that's wrong. I think she's actually a drag on the campaign because she's prone to having her own versions of meltdowns. Biden has gaffes and everything where he forgets what he's going to be saying. Harris can have full-blown meltdowns if she gets off target and gets off script. And so because, and you know, she's unlike many, she's also unlike many other vice presidential picks in the past because Harris, unlike you know, Biden with Obama, unlike Cheney with Bush, and even it's, this is probably a little bit closer to John Edwards and John Kerry, I guess you could say, because she has actual future presidential ambitions herself that are more immediate than really any of her predecessors. This really does go back to the Edwards, Edwards and Kerry, because she her, she's joining up with Biden right now with their interests are aligned in she's not really aligned with him so much as she's just aligned with trying to win and advance herself. She's not a true believer in either what you could say the Biden agenda is or the Obama legacy. During the primary, she didn't like having herself nailed down to specific policies and either, and she didn't like this in the Senate either. She always liked to stay a little bit more general and never have to take a position on anything. Her chief political focus at all times was always just looking great in the process and looking good for the rest of the party. 
And so you can sort of say that's going to happen here, too, that regardless of what happens in the race, she will look out for herself over whatever happens with the Biden campaign. I think the dynamic you could look at here that would be most similar is that it would be like Donald Trump choosing Ted Cruz as a vice presidential presidential candidate. You would know full up front that the loyalty would never be that deep, and you would know that Cruz was always planning to do his own thing. He would be loyal to himself first and not the presidency. Kamala is going to be the same way. Biden will always be second. And so that's why I've warned both in the newsletter and elsewhere that if this campaign goes sideways, it would not shock me if you saw the knives come out from her people where the Biden campaign starts looking bad from all these leaks that are coming out in the press, like the New York Times and other places where she is well-sourced, where they would repeat her side of the story over Biden. So that's something that probably won't come up this week. I'd be shocked if it did. But it is something to watch moving forward as the campaign sort of gets rolling and people start, you know, just start filling out their roles. Because right now, the Biden campaign is basically refusing to take any questions whatsoever from any reporter. They're not taking interviews. They're not taking long-form questions. They're not taking really anything right now. As soon as they're done speaking, they leave. Now, that's great if you can maintain it. But what is also happening here is that they are not going to have any practice whatsoever of maintaining, you know, message discipline and staying on target, you know, getting to sort of test run some of these things early on here where it doesn't really matter in some of these interviews. And later on down the road, if they have to do this and they slip up, it's going to matter more then. So there's, if they're able to do this nonstop or they don't ever have to answer anything from the press, this is a good strategy. But if they have to, you know, have to engage those political skills where they have to answer a tough question, they have to come through with a follow-up answer, which is Kamala's greatest weakness, as we witness on the debate stage, they're not going to have the practice at it, either Biden or Harris. And because they've been so guarded and there have been so few of these instances where they have engaged with the press, it's going to stand out more. The difference is with Donald Trump, there's about a dozen different interviews that he's done, and none of them are really sticking because everyone looks at a different one as more important than the other because each one of these things focuses on a different aspect. I know he's been on Barstool Sports. I think he's been on OutKick, uh, you know, two sports channels. So you've got those. You've got Fox and you've got Axios. So he's really covered a gamut of both mainstream media and alternative media, and they've been big interviews that everyone's talked about, and they haven't really impacted his his where he is in the polls They've just, you know, made his presence stand out. If Biden did one of those interviews or Harris did one of those interviews, it would really stick out because they haven't done as much. It would be the only thing that people would go have have to go back to. So there is, and people aren't really covering this, but there is a high risk that they're running with this, you know, front porch campaign. So that's something to watch as we move forward. I don't expect them to do any large-scale interviews this week, although they may schedule them last minute. And if they do, it'll be with highly friendly press. So those are my thoughts on the conventions as they open up this week. And with that, we can jump into the main topic, which I've already alluded to. And that is the Great Panic over the United States Postal Service or the great big conspiracy, however you want to see it. So a few weeks ago, 
at the end of July, I wrote a column for the Conservative Institute, and in it, I argued that the elites in our society were purposely working themselves towards the conclusion that any result in the 2020 election that they didn't like was illegitimate. If Trump won, the left was prepared to reject it whole cloth right now. If Trump lost, he wouldn't commit to accepting the results. He said he would just have to wait and see. So everyone is committed to rejecting the results of the election before, you know, especially if they lose, but they'll probably reject some of this even if they win, sort of how Trump did in 2016. So I want to return to some of the central points in that because when I wrote that column, I did not anticipate at all that it would be relevant just a few weeks later. I saw some of it then because this was coming out of one of Trump's interviews where he said that he would just have to wait and see in the event that he lost whether or not he would accept the results of the election. So I wrote it out of that because I... just watching Democrats and many on the left, they were a mirror image of Trump in many respects, repeating some of his same points just in different ways. But everyone was only outraged at Trump. So when I wrote it, I had more of an eye towards the end of October and when the November election came. I did not anticipate or see what would happen with the United States Postal Service. But here are the central points of that of that column. I said that like most D.C. issues, Donald Trump is only a reflector of the dominant spirit that pervades the nation's capital. And that is this. No one has accepted the results of the 2016 election, and everyone is preemptively preparing to reject an outcome they don't like. The point here isn't whataboutism. The point is that American elites are using the threat to democracy as a trope to attack legitimacy, any legitimacy at all, of their opponent winning an election. So the true believers here, they would, on the left, they would go back to the year 2000 when they would say that that, uh, George W. Bush stole the election at the Supreme Court. So that would be the first one of the modern era. Then uh, after that, you would have the big Diebold conspiracy theory, which was that uh, George W. Bush stole that election by, uh, you know, there was a company that was connected to him and the Diebold machines all gave him more votes. And that's how he won Florida again. So that happened in 2004. If you go forward, you have with Obama from 2008 to 2012, you have birtherism and him illegal and um you know, the people on the right accused illegal immigrants of giving him that election. And then, of course, in 2016, Donald Trump was illegitimate because of Russia, Russia, Russia. Each one of these is all a disproven conspiracy theory. In the case of 2016, we know that Russia interfered, but we also know from reading all of the intelligence reports that what Russia did didn't have any impact on the end outcome of what happened in 2016. They were just meddling and interfering and trying to cause some chaos, which they succeeded at doing, but we were already well on our way on that road ourselves. So the problem here with all of this, the problem isn't Trump. The problem is a broader belief in our elite groupthink that rejects anything that it does not preordain as good. Because eventually Donald Trump will be gone from the scene, and these same people will argue that anyone they don't approve of is somehow illegitimate. And this is a legacy that's going to be beyond that'll go beyond and it'll be separate from Donald Trump. It's and this is the more significant problem here, and it's coming to the fore here as we enter the 2020 election. 
Now, I, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, and I know not all my listeners are on social media, but if you are, no doubt that you've seen this latest craze, and that is this, that Donald Trump is purposely slowing down and hampering the United States Postal Office's ability to deliver mail, specifically hindering ballots from arriving in time to be counted for the November election. So that is the conspiracy theory, that Donald Trump and his man inside the post office is slowing down mail delivery and removing mailboxes, removing machines, and all these other things, and that is the thing that he's doing to prevent Democratic ballots from being counted in the election. So this is the entire conspiracy theory they're pursuing, and arguing it with a straight face. So this, I think it's crazy because this is this is how you have to boil down their argument. They're saying that Donald J. Trump, the guy who can't tweet one time a day without hurting his campaign, the guy who Robert Mueller basically said was too incompetent to commit actual collusion with Russia or anyone. I mean, the running joke is that at the time was that Donald Trump couldn't even collude with his own family or his campaign. They're arguing that this same Donald Trump, who has rolled out an infrastructure week, 500 times in the past four years, each one failing. They're arguing that this guy, the same one who's built up the United States COVID-19 response, which according to everyone on the left is the worst response in the world. I think that's untrue. There are a lot of mistakes there, but I don't think it's the worst in the world, but we'll accept it for now. They're arguing that this same guy is basically sitting back, growing a snidely whiplash mustache and twirling it in the Oval Offices as he laughs about hampering the United States Postal Service, in order to swing the results of the 2020 election. They are arguing for a level of competence here that has never existed. There has never been a moment, a single moment that you can point to in the Trump administration where you're like, oh yeah, that's a competent run from this administration, and they went all out. You can't say it was judges, because that's basically all Mitch McConnell. And you can't even, he's had a string of victories here lately in the Middle East, and which are all fantastic. The deals that he's been able to broker with Israel and in between some of these other countries is great, and he deserves praise for that. I think a lot of people are pointing to Jared Kushner for being the main mastermind there behind all that. But even with that, these are the exceptions. They are not the rule. His major legislative accomplishment is the tax relief bill, and now, most recently, the COVID-19 relief stuff, and everyone agrees that that hasn't been enough, but those are basically his major legislative accomplishments. So this is the guy that they're saying, this is the administration they're saying, is somehow competent enough to pull this off. Now, ignore all the factual inaccuracies that we're going to go through here, all the assertions. As it stands on its own, their conspiracy theory is just utter nonsense on stilts. They think the president is capable of conspiring at anything to swing the election. He's already fired his own campaign manager because he couldn't stay on message, and he's still not staying on message. So that what they're alleging here that they're capable of what this administration is capable of doing, that by itself is disqualifying for this conspiracy theory. Anyone who is espousing this as a factual truth, and I know Donald Trump has tweeted to this effect. I know he's done that. He's tweeted many things. He is always selling something. He's a reality TV show guy. I know he's tweeted. 
But to presume that that tweet is accurate or that he has that level of competence, if you're espousing that, you're saying something that is on the level of the QAnon conspiracies or other conspiracy theories. None of these conspiracy theories are right, and I'm not going to go through and explain QAnon or any of these other things. They're all bunk. But that's what this post office thing is on the level of, because it is so ridiculous, because you have to presume things that this administration can do that it has not done at any point in time, ever. So that's that one argument. The second thing we're going to walk through are just some of the issues, the factual issues that they're alleging that are not issues at all. Because... You know, there are people who are marching, probably even right now tonight, I don't know if they're still going, but they were earlier today, but they're marching around the Postmaster General's house pretending that he's the blame for everything. The guy has been in office since June. It's August. He has not been there long enough to affect any major changes whatsoever. I know Nancy Pelosi is calling for everything to be changed back to what it was on January 1st, which is also ridiculous. There are many systemic things that have been happening, systemic changes overall, happening in the post office that have been happening for two, three, and four decades. And so this flare-up now, as everyone's watching how one government agency is having to deal with the coronavirus, is just ridiculous. So we're, we're just going to walk through here the first point that they're alleging. So the top news story on this is... It's phrased in different ways, different headlines. I'm going with ABC News one because I thought it was the fairest of all of them. And it said, the headline it was, for it was, mail-in voting rules in 46 states may leave some ballots uncounted. United States Postal Service warns. So, what everyone's saying is that the Postal Service, they're just, they're just reading the headline, and from there they're saying, well, the Postal Service can't deliver from 46 to 46 different states, that's bad. That means the president is behind it. He's slowing things down. They just allege other things here, but they're, the main thing is they're alleging a slowdown, that the president is purposely slowing things down and preventing mail from getting delivered. If you click on the story and actually read it, you get a whole other ball of wax. So that's just what I'm going to do. I'm going to read some of the key paragraphs out of this. And, you know, I'll explain through it because one of the people they quote here is the general counsel for the United States Postal Service. And I completely understand what this guy is arguing in the letter that he sent out. Or girl, I'm not sure I caught the name. Guy. Thomas Marshall. Okay. So, here's the article. The United States Postal Service has warned election officials in 46 states and the District of Columbia that their absentee voting rules are incongruous with the agency's mail delivery service standards and may result in uncounted ballots, raising further alarms with the viability of a voting platform millions of Americans are expected to use in the run-up to the November vote. In recent weeks, Postal Service General Counsel Thomas Marshall penned letters warning that states may be overestimating the speed with which ballots will move through the mail. If the post office is not afforded a few extra days of leeway to deliver ballots to the election offices, Marshall warned that late-arriving ballots could leave some voters disenfranchised. Only four states received a clean bill of health. Nevada, Rhode Island, New Mexico, and Oregon. Among those with laws that concern the Postal Service are several key swing states in the upcoming election. 
In Pennsylvania, for example, the deadline to request an absentee ballot is one week before Election Day. And Michigan allows requests up until four days before the election. But in order for it to be counted in either state, under current laws, the ballot must be back in the mail and returned by 8 p.m. on Election Day. One week for two deliveries is not enough time, Marshall explained. He said it could realistically take more than a week for a piece of mail to be sent to the voter and then returned by mail in time to be counted. Under our reading of your state laws, this is a quote, certain state law requirements and deadlines appear to be incompatible with the Postal Service's delivery standards and the recommended time frame, Marshall wrote, according to one of the letters made public in a court filing on Thursday. As a result, he continued, to the extent that the mail is used to transmit ballots to and from voters, there is a significant risk that, at least in certain circumstances, ballots may be requested in a manner that is consistent with your election rules and returned properly and yet not be returned in time to be counted. So that is the, those are all the main points of what's happening here. So let's pause for a moment, and we're going to unpack this. So you have the United States Postal Service's general counsel. That is the head lawyer for that agency. He's sending out a warning to all the states. If you go back to, I believe it was May, he said that the United States Postal Service was looking over the laws of all the states and doing a review, and sending out. he sent out a warning in May, actually, saying that this could be a potential issue if mail-in ballots and absentee ballots, where there was an uptick in that use. So, he sent out a warning to the states for this one, saying that not all ballots could end up getting, being counted. And I'm just going to say this right now, right at the top. He is absolutely 100% right. There is no part of his letter to these states, to any agency, and to any person that is wrong. He is absolutely right on this. In fact, he's channeling... I mean, I've written columns to this effect. One of the columns I wrote recently was about the potential disaster in the upcoming election due to mail-in ballots because you have things like this happening. And there are other issues that could pop up as well. The issue here is not Donald Trump slowing down mail delivery. That's not the issue at all. The issue here is state law because it's different in each one of these states. The states have control over how these elections are performed everywhere. They get to choose how their elections are going to run. The Constitution gives them that right. If you're a state like Pennsylvania and you allow people to request a ballot three days before the general election and then mail it back, that's not on the Postal Service if you don't get it. That's state law. If you make that request as a voter and you just pop it back in the mail and expect everything to be, you know, honky-dory because you sent it back, that doesn't mean it's going to get there in time to be counted. Now, you may say, well, you know, there's these things where you, as long as it's postmarked by this, that's great and all, but votes are going to be counted on Election Day, and you can't wait forever to determine when more votes are going to come in. There has to be a cutoff date in order for these things to get wrapped up. So the issue here is that you have the Postal Service saying and warning they can't meet all these various deadlines. Some of them are impossible to meet. And if you have a big demand for these mail-in ballots or these absentee ballots, depending on you know what you've requested in each one of these states, if demand for those is up, 
then the number of screw-ups that could happen here where the Postal Service is just given the raw end of the deal, that goes up as well. So this is a warning that issues are going to pop up. That is a guarantee because you can't have a perfect system here. They know that that issues are going to pop up, and they know that they can't meet them. Because only four states here, there are 50 plus the, you know, the District of Columbia here, only four states got a clean bill of health. None of the others did. So there could be problems in all 46 others, and that includes every last single battleground state that exists. Now, some states are going to fare better on this than others because they have a very broad and diverse mail ballot system. States like Colorado, states like Florida. I think I've seen estimates of around a third uh, roughly about a third of all Florida's ballots are now mail ballots. So even if it ticks up to around half or more, they're going to be well positioned to handle everything that happens there. Some of these other states are not, just flat out. I know, I, living in Tennessee, I know for a fact, Tennessee would not be prepared if up to a third or a half of all their ballots were mail-in ballots. They would just not be prepared to be able to handle the volume, and it would slow things down. So... The other problem here is it's not just that you have these state laws that are happening here. You have one party, one political party in particular, that is pushing for this one type of voting to happen more than others. Because Democrats are actively trying to make mail-in or absentee ballots more prevalent than they ever are. And part of this is the virus. I get that. But they're advocating this as the sole reason that people vote. And that should not be the case. And that's why you have all this rush here. There are stories on this front. You can go back to the spring, you can go back to the early summer, where states were saying themselves, they were saying that there were backlogs both on absentee ballot machine counters and on their required paper, because these have to be printed on a certain way to be counted. There were there are backlogs just trying to get the supplies to run a lot of these things. It's you have to understand this a lot of this is like the toilet paper situation that we all experienced over the spring. If everyone has to do the same thing all at once, you're going to experience shortages because the supply chain has not managed to pick up. So what you're seeing here is the full supply chain on voting gets stressed to the max. And so what you need is not just this everyone go do mail-in or absentee voting. You need to have everything, all these alternative methods. Really, more access in early voting would be the best thing here. But you have to have all these methods to take the pressure off day of voting as much as you can because everything is getting slammed at once. And you just don't know, or nor can you anticipate what's going to go wrong. Now, as I said, the easiest thing here to do would just be to make early and day of voting safer and easier. Wisconsin, they had their special election back in the spring. And from every report that I saw, there's no evidence that anyone caught the virus as a result of that election. Now, you would know that by the coverage because they covered it like it was the apocalypse and everyone was going to die because they had to go vote. But the studies that came afterwards show no real link of anyone who got the virus as a result of voting. Everyone had prior exposure to the virus before they went and voted. So, the next up, and, uh, you know, so just make day, just make voting easier because the next part of this conspiracy is equally as crazy. And that is it's celebrities and it's others they're posting on Instagram, they're posting on Twitter. They are posting about how trucks are coming 
and they're taking away mailbox deposit boxes. Those famous blue boxes that you see where you drop off letters and packages and other things for the Postal Service. I think... uh, I think Jamie Lee Curtis was one of the ones who posted this. She was driving along and then saw a truck carrying away these these uh, mailboxes, and she was worried that that was a sign that we were experiencing an immediate threat to our democracy. This is, of course, crazy and absurd. That's not what's happening at all. It is true that these mailboxes are getting removed. The problem is, is that's nothing new. That's not a conspiracy theory. That is something that has been happening nonstop since 1985 on two fronts. And in, for the most part, it's been totally a cost-saving measure. So if you go back and you look at the last 13, 15 years of Postal Service uh, information and their budgets and everything like that, you know that they have been in under financial stress because they are not making anywhere near as much money as they need to. And part of that is because people are using their services less. In the past decade, mail usage has dropped to 17%. But that really doesn't fully cover the drop in usage that we've witnessed. Because if you just hear a percentage number, you don't know exactly how much that is. So at the height of the Postal Service's usage. That was the year 2000. And in that year, first-class mail alone, volume was over 103 billion pieces of mail that year. So that's the year 2000. So now we're 20 years later. And in the year 2019, the usage of first-class mail was only 55 billion. Now, I know we've seen other things like packages drop in here and other things like that, but there's been a dramatic decrease in the amount of mail that is still going through the Postal Service system. So as a result, they're having to adjust accordingly. Now, when it comes to the Postal Service and adjusting labor costs, they can't always just get rid of people who are running routes. So if you have a mailman or a mailwoman who's, who runs a route, they're going to run that route regardless whether or not you're getting mail or not. They have to go and deliver everything. So what they've had to do is people aren't using these drop-off boxes as much, and they have a system that identifies which ones aren't getting used as much, and when a mailbox isn't getting used anywhere near enough, they then take it away and allow that that um, the other packages and mail to go to the other boxes they have in the area. So, since 1985, which was the peak year for all of this, they've steadily been taking all these mailboxes out of order. The 85, 1985, as I keep saying, that was the zenith for these blue boxes, and the United States Postal Service had 400,000 of all these boxes across the country. Now, that number is under 175,000, and it's dropping. In the last years that I could find data for it, from 2011 to 2016, the United States Postal Service removed around 12,000 blue blue drop-off boxes around the country. So those are fewer drop-off points for people who are having ballots. So that's what, you know, all these crazy celebrities, they're alleging that, you know, people are stealing the election because they're taking these boxes away. And... That's just not true either, because they're being taken out because they're not being used, or they're being consolidated down to one. 
In uh, other cases, it may, may not be that at all. There was actually a, a program that went and replaced, tried to replace most of these blue boxes because the United States Postal Service said, well, we're seeing a significant form of fraud happen with these, so we need to change out all these boxes. So if you have an old mailbox drop-off location, you might see a new one where it's being replaced. So there are a litany of reasons here for why a mailbox is being removed, but a conspiracy for the election is not one of them. So we're going to go through one last parting shot here in this section because you'll see stories where senators and people on the left, they're all protesting the postmaster general at his house, as I mentioned at the top, because he's a Trump donor and he was unanimously selected by the Board of Governors for the United States Postal Service. The committee went through a selection process that started with about 200 people and whittled it down to him. And he's been in the job since June when the previous postmaster had retired in January. Because as you know, the Trump administration is slow to fill all these positions. And so it was finally filled in June. And as I said... All these problems that we've been noting and going through, the problem with, you know, ballots in November, which was being argued about already in the spring and early summer, all these things with mailboxes being taken away, where you have, you know, you have machines that are using sorting that are being either re-sent to other places or they're being taken out of commission because they're not being used as much. All this was done pre-before this guy. All of this, all the decisions, all these white papers, all these research reports, all the GAO reports, all the IG reports that you can go and look back on all this, it was all before him. And now they're wanting to drag him before Congress and blame him for everything. This is, without a question, a thoroughly embarrassing conspiracy for anyone to be pushing at this point. You have to assign blame for actions happening within the United States Postal Service that have been happening for decades. And the opinion of the United States Postal Service General Counsel and all the state laws that go with it and, you know, how it makes it impossible to meet the demands of all, you, you have to sign everything that he wrote in that letter to Trump. And it's absurd. All these people are saying extra things, too. They're saying, oh, you know, we need a strong postal service because you have the seniors and the poor and they depend on the postal service. And they haven't raised any of these these complaints for years. I mean, for Social Security checks, that switched alone by itself in 2013. People don't get their Social Security checks through the mail anymore. Everything is direct deposit on that front. And that changed in 2013. And, of course, they use the mail to do other things. But the overall volume for the mail has gone down considerably over time. Nick Gillespie over at Reason Magazine, he did... He he went around and asked the people, you know, well, what would happen if everybody just mailed their ballot all on the same day? And if everybody in the United States who decided to use a mail-in ballot, it was the same number of people who voted in 2016. So if you took the number of people who voted, had them all cast a ballot, and all put it in the mail on the exact same day in 2020... That amount of volume would only account for about 20% of, or 20, I think he said 30%, 33, about a third of what the Postal Service sees on a given day. So that, it's not the volume here, it's the state laws, it's the timing, it's what they're asking the Postal Service to do. You have to, if you're wanting to do this, you have to have 
not just money and not just resources. You have to have this timing of this set up. And this has been decided in states across the United States. They are the ones who have decided this. It's not Trump. In fact, his joke about moving the election to allow these ballots to be counted, that, that's effectively what he was joke he was he was saying in that tweet. We should have more time to count these ballots. And of course everybody had a cow because they said, Oh, it's Trump moving the election. But if you know anything about these letters, you know what he's talking about here because He's, he effectively was told, hey, these ballots not be, might not be counted. In a state like Florida, we have all these seniors who could potentially vote for you, and you need to go out and get all those people to vote. It would be better if we had more time. When he, and him being Trump would have said, well, we can just move the election. That'll give us more time. Of course, it's all ridiculous, and that debate was thoroughly stupid. But here we are. We've gone from Trump moving the election is bad to Trump is now using the... United States Postal Service to slow things down and prevent people from voting. That's where we've gone in the span of a few weeks, and no one seems to have realized it in that span of time. So where does that leave us? I think the most important thing, if you want the one, you know, the one important walkaway point here is that if you want to vote and you want to vote by mail, you want to get your ballot and you want to, ma- and you want to mail it, God bless you if you want to mail it, uh, do not wait to do this. Do not wait until the week of the election to do this. Do this at the latest, do this two weeks out. At the latest. The earliest that you can request them, and I know here in Tennessee, the earliest that you can request a absentee ballot, because we're not allowing mail-in ballots here, the earliest is after the, the primaries, which were just held. So you can request one at any point in this time. Every state law is going to be different, so you have to go to either your county or your state secretary of state or whoever puts on elections for your state, and they will have the rules there. It's usually not that hard. They will they give you step-by-step instructions on how to do it. But if you're going to do it, don't wait. Do not wait. Do not send it in, as Pennsylvania allows you, three days before the election. That is a recipe for not getting your vote counted. It's just, you, you will not get your vote counted, I think, if that happens. Especially if it's, it may happen, you may get counted if it's in a close race, but they're still going to have a cutoff line and say, well, we can't wait a month for people's stuff to come in. So don't wait, don't wait, don't wait. And if you're willing to skip the part where you, you know, put it back in your mailbox and have it mailed off, the other thing you can do is just drop it off. I mean, the easiest thing would be to drop it off. Uh, Some states allow you to drop it off at the election commission. You could just drop it off in a drop-off location there in a post office, which will do the same thing. So if you don't remember anything else that I talked to you and you want to believe in the conspiracy theory, I would disrespect you, uh, you know, whatever. Don't wait to mail in your ballot because you probably will not get your vote counted. So that's all I've got on this. We're going to take a quick break. and we come back, we will talk through the latest on the coronavirus numbers. So I'm going to start off talking through just the top-line numbers this week, and then work through some emerging theories that I mentioned at the very top of the show. So this week, we've run 67 million tests as of the end of day, Sunday, August the 16th. Week over week, we've run nearly 5.2 million tests, and that's a slight boost from last week because I was raising alarm over the last couple of weeks that we were not testing enough because it seemed like our testing was slipping and we had gone below 5 million. Well, we were above that this week, so it looks like testing has ticked back up. 
Hopefully we see that continue to move up. And for the most part, every day was a good testing day. We were usually 700 to 750,000 at least. It was sometimes above that. There was one bad day, and that was Wednesday. And we had fewer than 500,000. Going off the top of my head, I think we were around 475,000 that day. So it was a very weird day, and there was some glitches, and I think some te- some states were having some difficulty recording and reporting their tests that happened on that day. So just count that as a glitch, and you can kind of ignore that. Hopefully that doesn't happen again. But overall, it was a good testing week, especially if the prior weeks, when you factor all of that in. We have overall 5.3 million positive cases. That is not currently active cases. That is just overall the number of people who have gotten it that we know of through a test. And the active hospitalizations have started dropping, which is very good. We had a high on hospitalizations that was close to 60,000 overall. It didn't quite go over the peak of hospitalizations that we had in March and April. It was just, when you factor in what happened across the country, it was nowhere near as bad as what happened in New York and New Jersey. So if you look at that data and you look at the hospitalizations, which look like they peaked already and are going down now, it suggests that we hit a peak with this round of the virus somewhere between late July, probably somewhere between July 4th and 27th. That appears to be what would be the peak hospitalization date. That wouldn't be the peak death date but it would be the peak hospitalization date. So that would be after that you have hospitalizations going down and you have case counts going down then too. And the death marks as overall have gone across the 160,000 mark, which is of course bad. And the thing with that is that new deaths have started plateauing and slowly drifting down. The spike on deaths with this wave, because we had a lot of hospitalizations, but so far the number of deaths has not been anywhere near what we witnessed back in the spring. The testing positivity rate is also, that's another good news mark here, because we are finally dropped below 7%. As I keep mentioning, we peaked at around 8.5%, and right now that number is just below 7 sitting at 68 6.9%. So we're slowly seeing fewer people come back as we test. So testing went up, but we're still seeing fewer people come back with a positive case. So that means, and that tells us, that the virus is spreading less quickly, which is confirmed by the r not number, which continues to hold below 1 right now. The last time I checked, before I went on air, it was at a 0.96. So now remember, this means that for every one person infected, another person gets infected. So if you have an r not of 1, exact 1, that means if one person gets infected, they infect one other person on average. If it's below one, that means that not everyone who gets it is infecting another person. So that is a very good thing. It means that the virus is slowing down a little bit, and you always want that. If you have an above one, that means more than one person is getting infected if one person gets infected, and that's a bad place to be overall. So, our R naught is below one. It's at 0.96. Hopefully that keeps edging down a little bit because that will help us control the spread of the virus. Current models, if you're looking at overall how many people have gotten the virus across the country, current models are saying that an average of 13.4% of the entire U.S. population has been infected by the virus. 
The lower band for that estimate is 9.9%, and the upper band is 17.6%. So there's quite a variance there, and the middle ground is 13.4%. So we're seeing more and more people overall get and potentially have gotten over it. Because you have to, as if, if these models are assuming that about 40% of all cases are asymptomatic. So people never show a single symptom as far as we can tell. So it's estimated, you know, you've got, a, at a minimum, you've got about 10% of the population that has gotten this virus, which is a lot of people. When you're talking a 10% of 330 million, you're talking about 30, 35 million people who have gotten this virus somehow or some way. So by every major metric, we're coming down off highs on the virus, and this is a gradual slope down. Now, what happens next? That is anyone's guess. But this round went far better than how New York and New Jersey handled it. By far better. And every news story, and there are a lot of them, every time I turn on the nightly news or I look at the New York Times, they all point at Florida, Georgia, and Texas. But every news story that says that Florida, Georgia, or Texas handled this virus worse than New York or New Jersey, that is a joke. It is dead wrong. In every conceivable metric that you can pull up, they, these states did what you wanted. You had a pretty flat plateau. You were able to flatten the curve and spread out your cases over a long period of time from spring to now, and that is a good situation. New York and New Jersey faced the spike. They did nothing to stop it, and now you had all the people who were dead and all the people who got it. So you have a good situation and you have a bad situation. You could pick which one you would want to live through. You, do you want the entire country to ride through what happened in New York and New Jersey? Or do you want what's happened with Texas, Florida, or Georgia right now? And I would pick Texas, Florida, or Georgia, or even what's happened in Tennessee, because our results, the number of people who have died from it and everything, has been far better than these other states. Now, last week, I mentioned that herd immunity could be playing a role in reducing the spread of the virus. Now, obviously, if it's true here, even if we're at the lower band here and we're only at 10%, that is not enough. It's nowhere near enough to achieve herd immunity in any meaningful way. But it could be playing a role in reducing the spread of the virus as we get more people who have had it and are then immune from it. Because this means that as people get over it and they're not dying from it, they have an immunity from it and they're not going to spread it again. So that means herd immunity is existing on some small level here. And when you're dealing with a country of this size, if you're talking 30, 40 million people who have had it and are now immune, that's significant. And the significant part here is that it depends on who is getting infected here. So if you had people who you just know were not going to follow any rules whatsoever, and they were just going to go out and do their own thing. And they're the ones, that is the group that is now dealing with the virus, who's been sick, who has now you know, had the asymptomatic cases and all those different things. If they're the ones who are now immune, that is going to help overall because it's, it just flat out means that you're not seeing a spread in some of these other populations. It's the, it's the one that's the danger, your dangerous, most dangerous population. Their dangerous spreaders have already had it and are going through it. And so that provides a certain level of herd immunity as people head back out. So I read a piece in uh, MIT's technology review, and they were talking to some biologists, some, some modelers, and some epidemiologists, and they had some really interesting findings on this front, and so I wanted to sort of talk through and sort of read you what they found. So here's what the piece concluded. 
They said, what is certain is that in the United States, with a raging epidemic, natural immunity is building fast. During June and July, scientists estimate 450,000 people a day were being infected with the coronavirus in the United States, the highest figures since the disease arrived in February. That number is higher than the official case count because it includes an estimate of infections that go unseen, unfelt, or unreported. In June, CDC Director Robert Redfield told reporters that the real number of infections could be many times the official tally. For instance, Scientists have estimated that about 35 million Americans have now been infected, like I said, about 10%. So natural infection turns out to be an extremely efficient at reducing virus transmission, even more effective than an equal number of people getting a vaccine. And the reason is that the virus has been finding and infecting precisely those people who, whether because of behavior, circumstances, or biology, are most likely to be part of the transmission chains. And this is a quote here. It says, When the disease itself causes herd immunity, it does so more efficiently than when we give out vaccine at random. That's Mark Lipsitch, a public health modeler at Harvard University. And he told this to the pundit, political pundit Bill Crystal last week in a podcast interview. He goes on, as a result, there is a discussion about whether viral transmission could be reduced more quickly than generally believed, he said. Outside the United States, researchers are also closely tracking the role of population immunity in national responses. So Sweden is the big one here. And they say Sweden, for example, they didn't impose a strict lockdown and saw a large number of deaths starting in April. Since then, however, the number of new infections has declined. The nation's leaders said last week that children would go back to school unmasked. I would say in Sweden, there is no doubt that immunity plays an important role more than other countries, said scientists. Now, this epidemic is slowly stopping. In some cities like New York and Miami, blood tests show that 20% or more of the population has had the virus, but in regions still little affected, like small towns or rural areas, the population remains more susceptible. That means the virus can and will continue to cause new outbreaks. For instance, Louisiana saw a large spike in infections, followed by a lull and then a second spike. This occurred as the virus first hit New Orleans and later reached the rest of the state. So the geographic unevenness of the pandemic is one reason that many scientists think that Sweden is not able to get back to normal yet. One of them says, are we protected from big outbreaks if all the restrictions are released? The answer is no. On a national scale, the immunity is not that high. It might be 20%. But in Stockholm, it's maybe 30 or 40%. We may be close to herd immunity, so they could relax restrictions more. So that's the MIT Technology Review, talking to some scientists. I think that's really exciting and it's sort of a different way to look at epidemiology and how the virus spreads, because they're right. If you have people who just refuse to follow everything, and they're the population that's getting infected, and then it works through them and doesn't work through any of the rest of the population, then it's going to give you this natural immunity. Your most dangerous people here, the ones who refuse to wear masks and follow rules, they're the ones who get sick. So this is a potential piece of good news. And we could be seeing a slowing down of the virus because those most susceptible to getting it have already gotten it and are either over it or are getting over it. 
So hopefully that could help stabilize the spread of the virus moving forward, especially in these more densely populated cities. It's still, you know, it's still TBD when it comes to these rural areas because we they could still see a blow up. It could, you know, really work its way fast to one of these smaller communities. And so that would impact them differently because the healthcare is going to be different there. But even if you see it go through some of these rural communities, the results would be far different than what happened in the spring, at least for now. So the key, as I suggested in previous weeks, are these big cities. If places like New York see a second wave, that will seriously undercut this point on herd immunity immensely. Because if they see it again, then you've got a big issue. So we've got to keep watching, keep remaining vigilant, follow all social distancing guidelines, mask up, all those sorts of things, because we're going to learn here in the next weeks and months whether or not whether or not we've got any herd immunity, whether or not we've got, you know, sort of a working plan moving on. I know everybody's freaking out about schools, but there are good signs. There are some very good signs as we move forward, and not everything is bad. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to do the light item segment and then get you out of here. All right, this week's light item segment is titled, Sometimes Being Fat is a good thing. I really love this story. I've read it multiple times. I love it so much. And I love it specifically because of the picture that is involved. So for all of you out there worrying about your COVID-19 pounds, you put on the COVID-19, just like your, your, your freshman 15 in college or, you know, your marriage 15, whatever you want to call it. If you've got your COVID-19, a story out of China should give you some heart or a belly. Both the New York Post and the Fox News reported this story, and like I said, I love it. So rescuers in China found a man stuck in a well. He had been jumping up and down on the, on the wood that had covered the well opening, and then it broke through, and he didn't fall to the bottom. And you know why? Because he's fat. He somehow managed to fall in and get stuck because of his, and I'm quoting here, fat belly. Now, social media pictures that were floating around from people who were there, they showed the obese man sticking up out of the well halfway, and he's sitting there with his arms folded, waiting for the fire rescue team. And he looks like he's got a very cross position, like he's just sitting there, his belly stuck, but the upper part of his body's out, and his arms are free, and he's sitting there just, you know, all just angry-like. And they managed to tie some ropes around him and pull him out completely unharmed. Now, some tabloid reports pegged him at a whopping 500 pounds, which is a little more than a COVID-19, I admit. But others were a little bit more conservative in their estimates, and they were saying around the 300-pound range. But either way, his belly and his love handles, they saved his life. So if you're looking for some optimism in this COVID-19 world, maybe your extra quarantine weight will save your life someday. At least that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes, or hit me up on Twitter, at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.